0: Hello, and welcome to the third episode of About This. I'm your host, Jessica Dresch, and today I'll be speaking with writer Emily Kaplan. She's a journalist covering immigration and education. She recently had a piece published in Guernica about the life of Antonio Safin Cúmez, a man and a father who immigrated from Guatemala to the US in search of the American dream. She writes about their relationship and his experiences struggling in the new country, and eventually how he wanted to write a memoir detailing his experiences as an immigrant, his life, and how the American dream is not what it set out to be.
1: So I am a journalist. I cover education and immigration. And as part of my reporting among the Guatemalan diaspora in in New York City, I got to know this, this man, Antonio, um, and he and I became friends. I mean, I talk about this in the piece, but it turns out that I was listed as his emergency contact at the hospital. And so when he was hospitalized with COVID, the hospital and then the family reached out to me. And so I became very involved in being the go-between between the hospital and really the American Medical Establishment and his family back in a small Guatemalan town. And one of the things that I knew about Antonio that we discussed many times in, in one of our, you know, in our conversations is that he really wanted to write about his life. And so after he died, you know, I began to think about the tragedy of his life and that he would never get to write the book that he wanted to write about. And a and the main thesis of the book was that migrating to the U.S. had been a mistake and that the American dream, um, which is so fabled in Central America and around the world, but especially in Central America right now, doesn't exist. If it ever did exist, it certainly doesn't exist anymore. And he wanted to warn other prospective migrants about that reality. Um, And so I floated the idea of writing about his life to his family in a way that would never be able to replace what he himself would have written, of course, but I, I, you know, it it would be something. And his family was very on board with that. And so I did many, many, many hours of interviews with them. And, and um, the piece that was published as a result of that.
0: Can you go into just more detail of how you met, how you two connected? You write about bonding over politics and sending each other articles and um, his life before immigrating. And... You can just take it slow and I can ask you follow-up questions.
1: Sure. So he was from a small town called Santa Catarina Polopo in the western highlands of Guatemala, which by total coincidence is next to a place that I had lived a few years ago. I before becoming a journalist, I was a kindergarten teacher and I taught kindergarten. And so I knew the area a little bit, obviously not as a native of the area, but I was familiar with the geography and that kind of thing. And so that's one of the things that we talked about. And he had had a very um, tough life, as a lot of indigenous men, especially do, um, who who were born in the area that in the era that he was, he came of age during the uh, Guatemalan Civil War which is known as the armed conflict within Guatemala um, that suppressed a fight for a type of government that would be fair uh, to indigenous Guatemalans and really created pretty much a hellscape for indigenous Guatemalans. And so, at the, you know, he was born at a time where it seemed like um, a different way of life would have been possible for his community. and the the Civil War, aided tremendously by the United States, by the way, made that impossible. And so he lived in desperate poverty and he saw the prospect of life in the US as one way out of poverty and one way out of the the depression and the kinds of mental states that he was in as a result of the conditions that he was living in. And so he, he moved to New York City And I met him here in in New York. Can you
0: explain his fascination, background in politics, and then just like the hardship that he faced coming to the U.S. and
1: then once he was here? So, you know, in, in many ways, I see him as a kind of, you know, representative of what many indigenous Central Americans go through. Um, but of course, he was also very much an individual and his own person. You know, so um, the things that he faced were things that a lot of people face who come to the US. But, you know, he also, you know, had his own particular interests that were not necessarily representative. And one of them was um, he was extremely informed about. Um, politics and legal systems and types of governments, and he really saw the U.S. as a place that had fulfilled um, the dream of, of of having a democratic government, which Guatemala hadn't, um, and he saw it as a place that was a model for the rest of the world in terms of what a government could be, and he he wanted to come here and experience that and take advantage, not take advantage, but um, you know work within a system that would be fair um, and would compensate him for, for hard work. Um, and so he had this dream, which is shared by many, many people all around the world that if you come to the US and you work hard and you follow the rules, then you will make money and you will be able to have the kind of life that you envision for yourself. Um, and I don't think he ever dreamed of becoming a wealthy man. Or, you know, I think he wanted, um, I mean, I wrote about this in the piece, he wanted to build a home, a house for his wife, um, and he wanted to be able to support his children. And he realized soon after getting here that, um, as he said, the American dream is, is a lie, um, is a delusion. Um, and I have thought about that, but. Yeah, so that's something that, that's a message that he very much wanted to, to send to prospective migrants, is that this is a myth, um, and it's really not worth it. So
0: he comes here with an American dream, basically, to be able to make money for his family and then return, pay off the high interest rates of the coyotes, coyote being a person that goes with you to travel across the border through the desert smuggler and and you write about like immigrants mental health in this country especially in this piece so what do you think was was that turning point where antonio said this is this american dream is a myth this is a lie and i'm gonna write about it Uh, you
1: know i don't i don't know exactly what the turning point was for him i i don't ever want to speak for him um my experience in talking to him, I don't know exactly when that turning point was. I think it became very clear quite soon that it's really hard to find a job while here being undocumented, especially if you're older because you can't do the kind of or you know you're not hired for the kind of physical labor that a lot of very young men are hired to do. Um, and he was taken advantage of um by his employer at a grocery store that he worked with, which is also extremely common. Employers will underpay undocumented workers or not pay them and then threaten to deport them if they try to get what they they have earned. And it's very hard to find a job. He also, Antonio, really felt the pressures of, or the the constant anxiety of the threat of being deported, which is also, I, I wrote about that in another piece that came out last year there's a constant anxiety about being found out by ICE and deported. And so I think that restricts a lot um, of life. You're afraid to go on the subway, you're afraid to to work, you're afraid to be out. Um, And so that really impacts the lives of undocumented people in a very, very serious way. And so, you know, I wrote about in the piece, Antonio had struggled with alcoholism before coming to the U.S. And that intensified quite quickly and and severely once he was here. And alcoholism is very common among undocumented people. It's one way of coping with the extreme stressors. You know, that's been documented. Alcoholism is is definitely one way of doing that. I'm not, you know, certainly not universal, but it is it's typical in that way of dealing with the the realization that life is not what you expected it to be.
0: So how long did you know Antonio?
1: Yeah, about a year and a half.
0: You write in the beginning of the piece, one sentence is we were both very lonely, each in our own ways. Can you explain that?
1: Um, You know, I think it's to explain why people become friends is always, hard. There's always sort of an ineffable element, but I think there was something that we sort of recognized in each other. We shared similar interests, but I think we also shared a a sensibility in a way and connect in that way. I had just moved to New York. Obviously, my experience is worlds away from his, um, but I think we, yeah, we, we shared a sensibility and an interest in getting to know people in this new city of ours.
0: When do you think Antonio contracted COVID-19? Like when he first started to get really
1: sick? Um, I don't know. His roommates that I interviewed for the piece suspect that he probably got it on the subway when he was going to look for work. Because as I wrote about in the piece, he, he kept looking for work even when the pandemic had begun because he needed to. There are obviously no... Social services for undocumented people. There are some charities, but things like unemployment and stimulus checks and all of those do not come for undocumented people, which I believe is profoundly unfair, especially because a lot of undocumented people were doing what were considered essential jobs. Um, so you have people risking their lives to do things like work at grocery stores and are not getting any of the protections that American citizens are getting. And so Everyone I spoke to believed that he probably got it looking for work, but but we don't know.
0: And can you just explain, I guess, just the experience of being friends with Antonio and knowing something was wrong, getting a call from his daughter, and then becoming this makeshift medical translator that really wasn't your job, but you took it on.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, I didn't know something was wrong. I feared that something was wrong because I wasn't hearing from him. um, And I wasn't he wasn't responding to any of my text or messages on Facebook and that. I was worried that something was wrong, but I didn't know. Um, So when I got the call from his daughter, that was the first I had I had heard from any of his family and that I had heard that he was indeed. Uh, really sick, which is what I was worried uh, was was happening. So it soon became clear, you know, I knew about his family, but, you know, I understood in talking to them that they had no familiarity with the American medical system, um, which is impossible to navigate even for for American citizens who speak English and who are aware. You know, I just, for instance, tried to find a new primary care doctor on my new insurance and I, you know, am a very well educated native english speaker and like I couldn't do it. And so to try to do this from Guatemala, not speaking english, not having any familiarity was just totally overwhelming. So I um you know, Maribel his daughter told me that she didn't even know what hospital he was in and she had done things like googled hospitals in New York. But obviously, you know, <laughs> that is not going to be helpful. Um, And so I tracked him down. You know, I never said, oh, I'm going to become intermediary. It just became clear that, you know, I was worried about my friend and this was necessary to even figure out what was going on with him. And then, of course, once I figured out what was going on with him, I had to talk to his family about it.
0: So in your piece, you write about Maybe there was this fear or there was this fear that Antonio thought there would be ICE agents in the hospital. And so maybe that's why he delayed going there if he really did feel sick. But how do you feel like the hospital let maybe let Antonio down or just could have done things better, like having a translator available for him from the start? That is a medical
1: translator, right? So I think that's two. That's two separate questions, right? So one is undocumented people's fear of interacting with any American institution. You know, I, I have written about this in other pieces. In terms of the pandemic, undocumented people have not gone to the hospital, even when they feel sick, because they worry about, um, if not being deported, which is a huge fear, being. You know, listed, put on a list of of a person that is undocumented. And they also worry um, that they won't be able to pay for services. And all of those concerns have merit. You know, all of those things have been documented as as happening. Um, so this isn't a paranoia. this is this is accurate. And immigration agents do go to hospitals. People do get deported from hospitals. So that is that is very real. In terms of hospitals' treatment of non-English speakers, it is the law that you have to provide translation. And yet, of course, many things are the law that that don't happen. So you know, in the particular hospital that Antonio is in, a huge percentage of people there do not speak English. Um, first of all, I will say. This was in the first wave to hit New York City. So the hospitals were completely overwhelmed. The doctor that was overseeing Antonio's care was a very kind man who was extremely overwhelmed. But in terms of of providing medical translation, the the hospital did not follow the law, which is uh, to provide medical translation from the start. And then when they did provide the translator, which I talked about in the piece, the translator that they provided was incompetent and negligent who did not translate key pieces of information, right? So so I think that, you know, that is, and that is not uncommon. Um, I will say with immigrants, you also have cultural translation, which is a huge element of it. You know, Antonio's family was not in any way familiar with American hospitals. (laughs) With with any of the protocols, with any of the systems there. And so I think people often talk about linguistic translation, but they don't talk about cultural translation for immigrants. And that's not just true of Spanish speakers. It's true from immigrants from all around the world. And many cultures don't approach health the way that Americans do, for instance. And so you need all sorts of types of translation, which I think is not often talked about.
0: In one point of the essay, you write about getting a call with a country code. That's Guatemala's. And you pick up and it's Antonio's daughter, Maribel. Can you explain your relationship with her going forward? You've never met and Antonio was separated from his family at the time of his death.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Right, so I, um, the, the first person that I heard from to tell me about where Antonio was, was his daughter, Mariel, who called me from Guatemala. Um, and I describe in the piece when I'm, you know, home doing nothing. And I get a call from with the what I know is the Guatemalan country code. I think it could be her, uh, or it could be someone from Antonio's family, rather, because I didn't know her at the time. And so um, that was the first time that I met her. But, you know, I wound up speaking to her every day for a month because every night I would call the hospital because Antonio's doctor was on the night shift. And so around 9 p.m. every night, I would call the hospital and then I would call Maribel. And that continued for a month. And so we really talked a lot uh, during that month. And of course it was an extremely stressful, traumatic time for her and the entire family. So it wasn't just like, you know, getting to know you conversations. It was, it was conveying information like your father, you know, will have severe cognitive impairments if he survives. You know, that's not an easy thing to convey or to hear of course, but yeah, it was a really intense time. It was a really intense month.
0: So there are pictures in the article of Antonio's family members. Did you personally meet them in Guatemala? Yeah, I didn't write
1: about that in the piece, but the captions of the photos are from... So, good job being a close reader. I was there for a different reason this December. I was very careful. I quarantined before I tested and all of that, um, but I had to go for a different reason. And I met up with Antonio's family, with two of his daughters and Maria, his widow, which was yeah very moving to to meet up with them and spend spend a day with them after i had gone through this intense time of of talking with them yeah
0: all of this happened about a year ago right and antonio passed in april of 2020 so that's really at the beginning of covid for many of us beginning of quarantine beginning of lockdowns so how did this whole experience affect your understanding of something so new happening to all of us, which is a pandemic and lockdown, but then also having this experience of going through something with Antonio.
1: Well, I don't think it was maybe as new for me as it was for for much of the country. My my family is in Northern California, um, which shut down first in the entire country. And then, of course, New York City was the epicenter for quite a while at the beginning, and we were really the first, I think, to see how serious it was. So I had been in lockdown for maybe two weeks by the time this experience with with Antonio's family started. It was certainly in the beginning phase, but it wasn't. It wasn't like this taught me. Oh, this is really serious. Like I, I knew it, <laughs> um, and I had been talking with other undocumented people before this as well because I just I keep up with many of my sources and so I was very aware that this was hitting the undocumented community very hard and also more intensely and in some ways differently than a lot of my you know American friends and other people here in New York.
0: So Antonio set out to one of his wishes was he was going to write this memoir and he was going to explain his drastic, different ideology about the American dream, about coming here. Do you think those lessons would have stuck with people still wishing to come here? Like how, how really penetratable is the American dream?
1: My sense from talking to people here or undocumented people here, migrants here and people who are considering migrating in in particularly in Guatemala, but in other areas as well, um, is the idea of the American dream quote unquote serves a number of purposes. I think in one way, it serves as kind of a, a necessary source of optimism, which is if your life is really, really hard where you are, I think it serves a psychological purpose to think if I go, to the United States, my life will be better. There is an out, there is a way to make my life better. And so I think to dismantle that idea takes a lot. And I think it takes more than hearing one story. I certainly, you know, he's not the only one saying that of course, but I also think there's a lot of pressure among migrants to paint a rosy picture um, once here, I think it it can seem it can be a source of shame to say I have not succeeded, or life is not what I expect it to be. And I think there is a lot of storytelling, and and it's fictional in a lot of cases about what the U.S. is like. And I think a lot of that happens on social media. Um, migrants will post. Pictures of things that they encounter in the U.S. and and saying this is what it's like here. And I think telling the truth, which Antonio was very committed to doing, is is really hard psychologically to admit that um, that you're not making it. And so I think I think it's a very complicated question for a lot of reasons that a lot of Particularly, you know, Americans don't understand.
0: So, you explain this a little bit in the piece, but you talk about America's involvement in many of the reasons people today flee their countries in Central America, specifically with Guatemala, the US militarily and economically backed a violent overthrow, a coup of a democratically elected president for a dictatorship. And with the rhetoric in today's mainstream news cycle with the quote-unquote border surge, what does this say about Americans' understanding of immigration today and the reasons why people flee their countries in Central America?
1: I think there's a lot a lot of questions sort of implicated in, in the question that you just asked. I think, you know, the, the irony, of course, the cruel irony is that the U.S. created the conditions that are causing many people to feel that they have to flee. And I also want to say that where Antonio came from, the highlands of Guatemala, is pretty unique. In terms of um, the environment in the rest of, of Central America, particularly in the Northern Triangle, which is El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, which is sending by far the most number of migrants um, to the U.S. border, to the U.S.-Mexico border right now. Um, in that, it's relatively peaceful. Um, there is extreme poverty in Guatemala in indigenous communities in Guatemala, but it's it's not really violence that is causing a lot of migrants to flee. It's more poverty. Whereas in El Salvador and Honduras, it's extreme violence. And it's, it's gangs, kidnappings, m- random murders. I've written about this in other pieces. So I think that people tend to see Central American migration as sort of one lump thing, whereas it's actually extremely different. So, you know, someone coming from El Salvador is coming because they fear for their life for the most part where someone in Antonio's situation is coming because they can't eat. You know, and I think that's different, but I think Guatemala really is the exception. There there is gang activity, especially in Guatemala City and in Huehuetenango and, and in the parts of Guatemala that are sending the most migrants, but Guatemala is is relatively unique in terms of the landscape right now. And of course, the US you know pretty directly caused the situation in El Salvador, for instance, right now in the 80s. Anyway, that's a different story. But I I I, I do want to emphasize that there are many push factors. When you talk about push factors for migration, US involvement, you know, is traceable (laughs) to many of them. So I think the cruel irony is that the US creates the conditions, whether it's poverty war prejudice, you know, that send a lot of of migrants and of and then treats them extremely cruelly once they're here
0: i i guess just in general you cover undocumented people in the u.s immigration where do you see this going in the future and it's a really broad question you can answer it however you want but in terms of how undocumented people are treated in this country once getting here from your experiences of dealing with antonio who is undocumented and then being, this, uh, being someone that had to remind the hospital to follow the law and supply a medical translator. It, it's a broad question, but like, where do you see this going in the future in terms of how the U.S. treats undocumented people coming here, how we come to even just understand that our, our blatant involvement in so many of the reasons why people flee their countries and come here?
1: I think... It remains to be seen what happens policy wise under the Biden administration in terms of what happens to asylum seekers, which I want to emphasize is legal. There is no other way for a Central American or people from many parts of the world to emigrate other than to arrive at the land at the border and ask for asylum, which is 100% legal. People have this idea that. Coming to the borders, quote, illegal immigration. It's not. It's it's legal, and it's the only way to ask for asylum in many cases. Policy will determine a lot. Policy will determine a lot about what, you know, the the legal fates of people who are already in this country, including the children, who are brought here by by migrants. Um, I think. There's a lot of potential for the Biden administration to change a lot. And of course, policy influences attitudes among American society at large. I think there's not a complete overlap in terms of policy and attitude. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of racism that plays into that. But I don't don't know what the future holds. I think there is an awareness now that immigration is something that needs to be addressed. And needs to be reformed.
0: I guess just as a general reflection with your particular story with Antonio, how has this experience changed you? Did you learn something new or were these lessons you already knew of?
1: I think the experience illustrated, you know, gave specificity to a lot of what I had already learned. But, you know, I think more than anything else, it was a personal story it was the experience of witnessing a friend of mine die in a completely preventable and tragic way and being the person who had to repeatedly give his family extremely terrible news (laughs) so i think you know i i think i learned specific details for instance you know When I would call the hospital, and it would say, you know, for Spanish, press two, but that was in English. Like It was those kind of details that, you know, I would learn those kind of details and realize just how unjust the system is and really ridiculous in a lot of ways. But I don't, I don't think I learned some grand new understanding about, you know, this I think more than anything it was it was a personal story
0: well thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me yeah thanks for reading my piece so carefully